I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to teach this text this afternoon. Thanks for being here. Uh, last week, I got to preach at Redemption Flagstaff. The week before that, I was Redemption Tucson, so I've been on a tour, which means that I have not gotten to update you all on how three-year-old soccer has been going. You know, I know you've been dying for an update. What's the status? And we're on a great win streak. The uh, morale is high, and I've really uncovered the secret to uh, winning games in three-year-old soccer, and here's what it is, is it's inherit talented players that you had nothing to do with creating. That's the whole secret. That's all it is. Uh, we got a bunch of kids who like getting sweaty and running around, and it's like, oh, walkie-talkie, airplane, what's this plant? You know, and got one kid, he's a killer, he's Emmy's Alex, and every time he touches that ball, he just goes the whole length of the field and scores. And so we win. We, we won multiple games, and afterwards, all the kids are like, we won, we won. And I'm like, that is... Technically true. We, we, we did win, right? And then they do the high five, and at the end it's like, good job, good job, good job. And they're lying unless they're saying it to Alex. Everybody else <laughs> did a bad job. They did not do very good. And so it's, they barely comprehend what's going on. You know, like if they, if they make contact with the ball, it's like, whoops, they, that's okay. You know, so, uh, but Alex is a killer. He, he wins games. And so that's how that goes. But this, this is sort of how I feel about this text. There's something scandalous in it that frankly shocks me that I think should at first flinch make us feel a little icky, if I'm going to use a good three-year-old word. It's a little yucky that we may be glorified with him. On what basis would we share in God's glory? Like if glory is like gravitas, it's weight, it's gravity, it's all eyes on me, like the glorious person, like you lift them up and it's like, wow, look at him go. And this idea that God is glorified, he's glorious, that he's worthy of attention and praise, and he's going to share in his glory with us who do nothing except for regularly detract from his glory is absolutely insane to me. It feels like I am my son on Alex's three-year-old soccer team. We won. It's like, I, sure, but you didn't contribute and it wasn't really, I mean, they, they tried. You know, there was a good A for effort, but a, effort does not win games. Goals win games. You know, that's how, and so there's this, this, this thing that we get to share in God's glory. How is that possible? Why does he do that? Why do we have this creator, omnipotent, omniscient, generous God who's willing to share in his glory. Like if you have an ounce of self-awareness, you're like, I should not share in his glory. Like eyes off me, eyes on him. But this is part of this, this text that the, that the reason we share in God's glory is because he's adopted us as his children that we are part of his family. And so when the family wins, we win, even though all we've done is do our best to make it a loss. And so this text is all about the spirit of adoption, all about the, the new things that come into play when God brings us into his family. We've been preaching through Romans 8, and in Romans 7, there's this big internal me versus me thing going on, your good intentions versus your bad intentions, battling out, you do the things you don't want to do, you try to do the good things, and sometimes you do them, but it's me versus me, and then there's this new ingredient in Romans chapter 8, this new ingredient is actually a person, and he's the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, and all of a sudden, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and there's this air of victory, this air of glory, this air of 
actual capacity to conquer our sinful inclinations. And right at the root of this text is this benefit that we get from the death of Jesus Christ. It's that adoption as sons and daughters of God most high. So I'm gonna unpack that and we'll walk through this verse by verse uh, before I close. Let me pray. Jesus, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would translate my words uh, to the hearts of everyone listening, myself included. Help us hear your direct address uh, through Paul by your spirit to us. God, I pray specifically for people who are insecure about their position with you. That it feels uh, up for grabs, it feels vulnerable, it feels like a possibility, not a certainty. God, speak to us by your spirit that we would see uh, the reality by which we might be your children. In your name we pray, amen. So the first thing we talk about in this text when the Holy Spirit comes in our life is we get a new leader. Like see, we as Americans love to think that we are a leaderless people, that we're free thinkers, that we make our own choices, that we set our own priorities, that we establish our own values, that we direct our life. We all like to think we're like these little John Waynes who just kind of go our own way and are unfazed by the crowd. And that couldn't be further from the biblical truth and it couldn't be further from the psychological truth, that we are followers to the core. The only thing we get to choose as people is we get to choose who we want to try to follow. The question is not, will we have a leader? The question is, which leader are we going to try to hitch our wagon to? And so many of us, without identifying the fact that we are followers, are unconsciously or subconsciously or at least accidentally led by all these cultural subtexts and currents that are turning us into who we don't want to be. If I asked any person, do you want to worship sex, worship money, worship power? Everyone would say, no, I don't want to do that. But yet the three dominant prevailing worldviews that reduce and explain human behavior are capitalism, Marxism, and Darwinism. Darwinism teaches that the basic thing that makes a person a person is the desire to pass on their genes, the selfish gene that is talked about. That the basic instinct, the basic definition of success is to reproduce. That reduces the core human experience to that of sexuality. Now we have an entire world, like an entire subculture that says if I can't act on my sexuality how I want, I'm actually being oppressed. That liberation is unhindered, unfettered, expressive sexuality. That's rooted in Darwinism. We have a whole other pocket of the culture that wants to reduce every interaction, every dynamic to power dynamics. Who has the most? Who has the least? Who checks the boxes so they can have the most? Whose voice should matter? It's all about doing a calculus about power dynamics. And so you can see who will climb the chain and who will sit where and who will sit. And that's Marxism. That's the, the, the thrust of human motivation is the will to power. And then also we have this capitalism. Now I'm not trying to critique the free exchange of goods and services, but I am saying the reducing of human impulse to be the accumulation of a pile of cash because cash is liberty. That if I just had enough money, then I could finally do what I want. That if my bank account was finally uninhibited or not tied to a paycheck, then I would have true freedom of speech. That if I could really go where I want, do what I want, say what I want, that if I had enough money, then nobody could boss me around anymore. And all of these are trying to make sense of human liberation in terms of some reductive power. And I want you to know that if you at a gut level examine yourself and say, what is my actual working definition of a successful life? That question, Jesus asked that in the beginning of John. What are you seeking? What do you desire most? What do you want? And when I'm honest and I answer that question, my answer to that question is way too often indiscernible from all my non-Christian neighbors answer that question. 
I want comfort, a little bit more money, the capacity that I want. And it's actually like an answer that's relatively void of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And what we're being revealed here, what's revealing that to me is that I am more led by the cultural climate than I want to admit. That I am more conformed to the pattern of this world than I want to admit. Now, I know everyone knows the right answer to the question, what are you seeking? But I'm saying, what's your honest gut answer to the question, what is your definition of success for life? Think about for your kids. Their life will be successful if blank. How different is that answer from the answer of our non-Christian neighbors? Part of what Paul's getting at here is those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is a diagnostic question. It's a confrontational question. It's inviting the question of how actually led by the Spirit are you? Because when we are taken captive by the Spirit and led into the deeper form of human flourishing that is the kingdom of God, we begin to understand that a successful life is the practice of the Christ-like life. Sex, money, and power are good, but they're ancillary. They're peripheral. They're on the margins of what constitutes a good life. That the good life is more about a presence congruent with the character of God than it is about the accumulation of power, sex, or money. That the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, a successful life is someone who has accumulated those characteristics, has accumulated those virtues that can walk into any room and their presence, their, their energy, their, their vibe, whatever you want to call it, actually faithfully represents the character of the Father. That there are other things that matter, but faithfully being the image bearer of God that we were made to be is the definition of a successful life. Now that plays out in a lot of ways. That plays out in corporate structures. That plays out in HOA boards. That plays out in PTAs. That plays out in how you coach three-year-old soccer. But most basically, it is a character presence question, not an accumulation uh, uh, resume question. So the question we have to ask is, how led by the Spirit of God are we? And when we're honest, it's not as much as I want to be or not as much as I could be, or not as much as I should be. That's true of me, and I'm certain that's true of you, that all are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Leadership matters. Leadership sets culture. Leadership establishes priorities. Leadership sets, sets values. If you've ever been in an environment with bad leadership, you know that bad leadership sets bad values, sets poor priorities, it establishes poor communication. And here we're going is, we have this leader called the Holy Spirit, and he sets, he sets values, he sets priorities, he sets the, he sets the, the bar, he, he establishes a culture. And when we're led by him, the culture we make in our wake is going to be congruent with the spirit of God less and less than with the spirit of the age. That we are like sailboats with sails. There's always these winds blowing. The spirit of the age blowing this direction, the spirit of God blowing this direction. And part of our responsibility is angling our sails in such a way that we're led by the spirit of God and not led by the spirits of the age. That leads to this next question, which is uh, what actually are these 
the, how these spirits play out, right? Because in the next verse, we get this idea that there's really these two spirits. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I don't think anybody thinks that more fear in the world would be a good thing, but I also don't know many people who think that more crying in the world would be a good thing. Because here, what you have here is these two spirits. Spirit of God that leads to, uh, or the spirit of slavery that leads to fear. And then you have the spirit of adoption, which leads to crying. And if he said someone who's like struggling with fear, you're like, have you considered crying more? That's like, that one, it'd feel a little bit weird. Like, oh man, that person's really led by the spirit of God. They cry all the time. You know, that'd be like, I don't know if that's a marker most people would look to, but part of what Paul's getting at is there's a spirit A called the spirit of slavery that leads to fear and the spirit B, the spirit of adoption that leads to crying. I want to unpack that a bit here. So it's one thing to think about, like, this isn't just a describing a generalized fear. Like if you're led by the Spirit of God, you won't have financial fears or you won't be afraid of drowning or you'll like surf 90 foot waves. That's not what he's getting at. It's not like the absence of all fear. It's not the shutting down of the nervous system. But what he's getting at here is there's really two types of people in a house in the first century. Two types of people, right? There were uh, these slaves, uh, which I think a better way of translating this spirit of slavery would be spirit of the word there's doulos, which could be understood as a servant or worker even. And this was like indentured servants that served a period of time and were compensated in, in various previously agreed upon um, manners. And so they were the, the non-family members in the house. They were the servants of the household. They were the workers in the household, basically employees. And also then the other people you had were the family members. And they were positionally secure. And so what happened is there's under one roof and the live-in workers and the family members were lived in the same house, but both had very different positions in terms of security. One could be fired. One could be kicked out. One, you do the wrong thing, you're gone. And one is a family member that can't be unadopted. Right? Even like I checked this with a couple people this morning, uh, that in Arizona, uh, it's actually totally legal to cut your biological kids out of your will. In case any of you have needed to consider that, uh, it's totally legal. But it's illegal to cut your adopted children out of your will. It's a, it's a provision to prevent abuse, to pr- create protection for people who are already vulnerable. It assumes that what's proceeding by, what precedes adoption is actually trauma or some very difficult situation and that these folks are in a difficult position and then they're adopted, which meant to go from insecurity to security. It reminds me, so before we had two kids, we had two dogs. Now, if you know me, we have one dog. Now, some people went, oh, and I just went, I'm happy about it, you know, so... Uh, we had this dog, Herman, weird from the beginning. I don't know what his deal was, but his whole energy was kill the vibe. You know, if everyone's having a good time, he's over there being weird and just ruining the mood. You know, it's like when you, you're having a family moment, he's in the corner. When you're trying to get space, he's on your lap. He just kind of radiated this like nervous, weird, licky energy. And I was just, I was just not into him, you know. And so uh, eventually we had a kid, uh, Jay, who ended up turning, he was like one and a half, something like that. And Herman bit him on the face. So you all went, ugh, and I went, boom, he's gone. You know, we got this dog out of here. Thank goodness, you know. So it was finally like a reason to get rid of this dog. And it was, I, was, I don't want to sound too heartless, but it was like just the perfect bite on my kid, you know. Left just a mark that lasted for like 10 minutes. Enough where like, yeah, he definitely bit him on the face, but enough where it wasn't like traumatizing to Jay, but enough to justify getting rid of the dog. That's how it worked. It was like checked all my boxes on best scenario. Dog crossed the line, dog is gone, right? Someone asked me, well, where did the dog go? I was like, you went to a loving family. Don't worry. We didn't just 
leave it out for the Hawks. You know, it was a, he was a little, he was a little dog. The Hawks would have done the trick, but we didn't, we left him out. We gave, we gave him away. He's doing better now than he was before. But there's this reality that there were two types of things in my house. Uh, my family members and this other thing that you cross the line and you're gone. And what Paul's getting at here is you were welcomed into God's house. Now hear me out. You are not welcomed in as a hired hand. You are not welcomed in as a worker. You are not welcomed in as someone who could cross the line and be kicked out. You are not welcomed in as someone who had to earn affection or demonstrate proficiency. You are not welcomed in as someone who had to earn their keep and maintain the approval of the master. You're not welcomed in as someone who was on the verge of being dumped if like the priorities changed. You're welcomed in as a son, as a daughter, as an heir. Can't be cut out of the will. Total security. That when the master goes away or the master passes away, you are secure and stable. It's not like you have to fight for your job after the change in leadership. No. You are part of the household. Not conditional upon your exist, not, not conditional upon your performance or your, your attitude or your disposition, that you are all the way part of God's house. So when he says, we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, he's addressing this insecurity before God. That in the pagan world, you are constantly trying to earn the approval of the gods. But this is not the pagan world. This is the Christian world. And you don't try to earn the approval of the God. He earns the approval for you in his death and his resurrection. So he's rebuking this fear-driven insecurity based on your position with God. Some of you think you're like the dog in God's house. Some of you think you're like an employee in God's house. And this text is confronting that insecurity and saying, you are not. You are adopted. You're in the will. You're getting an inheritance. You're positionally secure. You're part of the family. Screw up again and again and again and again. And guess what? You can't be taken out of the will. So the, one of the ways that we repent because of this text is to become more secure in our understanding that we are not on shaky ground in our relationship to the Father. We're not houses built on the sand, we're houses built on the rock. On the faithfulness and atonement of Jesus, we are stable, we are good, there's nothing at risk here. The spirit of adoption as sons by whom he cried, this is our new position that we go from being outside the house to inside the house, not as slaves, but as sons. The question we have there is like, why does it say sons? Why doesn't it say sons and daughters? Well, this is picking up on this Old Testament theme that we get all the way back in the book of Exodus. It says in Exodus 4, 22, it says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, so God's people are enslaved, not indentured servants. This is uh, slave, enslaved against their will, permanent generational ethnic-based slavery. Uh, in the book of Exodus, it says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. It's describing this new Exodus, that Israel was God's beloved loved in this privileged position, an, an heir of things. And God is telling the church right now, like, you are my son, my one people of God in the basis of faith. You're Abraham's descendants. You're the descendants of Moses. You're the descendants of David. You are in Christ. You are part of this one people of God, and you are my cherished possession. You are the heir of all things. I don't have this kind of like split it up three-way situation. You all are all together, my son, this position of heir to all things. And that leads us to the internal battle we face, which is this new witness. The Spirit himself bears 
witness. I don't know if any of you are like, like uh, legal or courtroom drama show watchers, but I, you can watch a couple of those and they kind of end up feeling the exact same. It's like, yeah, can we get that witness to testify? I don't know. You know, the cartel might kill him first. You know, we got to get that witness up there. I got to get that witness. And it's trying to get the witness who's going to seal the deal. And they finally call the witnesses and it looks like so-and-so is going to win. But then they bring out the bada bing, bada boom, surprise witness. It's the guy's ex-wife. He's totally hosed now, you know, and she's going she's gonna to let him have it. And this is going to sway the judge. And the judge is there listening to the witnesses or the jury's there listening to the witnesses, trying to evaluate the truth. And here Paul paints us as the judge hearing the testimony of witnesses, saying there are all these witnesses testifying to you about you, telling you how valuable you are, telling you how worthy you are, telling you what your, uh, what, how, how your, your contribution to society, telling you like your, your paycheck bears witness, your employer bears witness, your, your father, your mother, they bear witness, your kids bear witness. There's all these people, uh, pop music bears witness, the, the poets bear witness, Harry Potter bears, bears witness, trying to, dis- to describe to you your worth, your value, your identity. And here's what he says is, there's all these witnesses, but their spirit himself bears witness. Telling us who we are, that our, with our spirit, so he's bearing witness to our spirit, with our spirit, that we are God's children. That God himself shows up on the witness stand, telling us who we are, and tells us you are a child of God. And we have to ask this question of which witness will we listen to about our identity? Are you going to listen to Lady Gaga? Are you going to listen to the Instagram algorithm? Are you going to listen to uh, the, the, the news anchors? Are you going to listen to the IRS who's telling you this is how much money you're worth? Are you going to listen to, are you gonna listen to the most faithful, omnipotent, omniscient, king of the universe, never been wrong by anything in day in his life, who is bearing witness to your spirit that you are his child? Special access, absolute security, eternal inheritance the privilege and the position of being a child of God. And he says, that's my child. You are my child. This whisper into our gut, into our ear, telling us, you're my child. What, what does that voice sound like? What does, it, what does it play like? It doesn't describe what the voice sounds like, but it does describe the result of the voice. And the voice is the one that says that we cry out, Abba, Father, by whom? By the Spirit. So it's the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that causes us to then cry out, Abba, Father. The result of the witness of the Spirit is that we cry out, Abba, Father. If you find in yourself an instinct to reach out to God and see yourself as helpless and to see yourself as child of God, that's part of the work of the Spirit. You know, I have a 16-month-old, Olivia. She doesn't have a ton of words yet, but she's got dada. And it sounds really nice until you realize that dada means a lot of things. (laughs) Some percentage of the time, it's, you're my dad, dada. Other percentage of the time, it's this call to action. You know, open this, take me over there, pick me up, put me down, close this, milk, water, apple. So it's dada, dada, dada. So you're constantly trying to translate what type of dada is this? You know, what is, so it's mostly dada do something. And I'm kind of trying to guess what's the dada do something, right? But so it's dada. And so, but I'm responding to, and this is this gut level 
honest assessment of I can't do it, you can do it, you're powerful, I'm weak, I'm helpless, you're helpful, you're able, I'm unable, dada do something. And this is the first prayer of the Christian. We don't really know what to pray for as we ought. We don't really know all of our theological language. We don't really know what exactly maturity in our conversation looks like, but we know Abba, Father. We know powerful, powerless, needy, needed, God, human, finite, infinite. That's the admission of the gap. That's the cry of our hearts. So if you're not sure what to pray, pray Abba, Father. And he's good at figuring out what you're asking for when you don't know how to say it. He's, good. he's like that mind reader parent that I think uh, we're all telling our kids, we're, I'm not a mind reader. You don't tell me what you, and, but he's the mind reader parent. He's what we're not as parents. He's the one who knows what we need before we need it, who anticipates and just, he's looking for connection, interaction, but he doesn't need instruction. And so Abba Father is sufficient. So, the instinct to pray like that is the work of the Spirit bearing witness to you that you're a child and you have a father. Ask him to do something. Next thing we get is the question of what do we actually get? A new inheritance. And this question feels a little yucky. You know, I've seen a lot of families get in a lot of fights because someone way too fast asks the who gets what question after someone passes. It gets pretty nasty. It gets pretty gross. Uh... But it's pretty natural to ask the question, all right, where's this stuff going? Let's, you know, we, we tend to jump to tasks in place of these things. What are we gonna do here? Uh, but here he addresses the what you get question. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You know, who you're an heir of matters. If you told me like, you're an heir of uh, Billy down the street who doesn't have anything. You're like, well, congrats for me. I can, uh, you know, sell his jeans for six bucks you know I don't know like if you're if you're an heir of someone rich and famous there's like this reality of like oh wow that's a lot of stuff I'm an heir so like what type of heir are we here we're we're heirs of God right I have a really good friend whose dad is like super wealthy and his dad's also super wise and has not let him have any of the stuff you know the line is like we're not rich I'm rich you know so but there's also this like yeah but there's still this like future security thing there, even if there's not current access, right? And that's sort of what it's like having being an heir of God. It's like, you do have to work to feed yourself for next week, but your eternal position is fine. Like you save for retirement, but way beyond retirement, for eternity, you're taken care of. Don't worry about that. Like all of us, even if we have the longest horizon of returns on our investments, they're really short compared to what we're gonna get from God most high. And so I wanna just talk about what exactly would we get as adopted kids. So here's the first thing we get, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Uh, John says this, by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign over the earth. How beautiful is that? That we inherit meaningful work to do. Some of you might be like, that does not sound like an inheritance. That sounds like an eternal sentence, not an inheritance. But the reality is like so much of what it means to find meaning and purpose is to find meaningful work to do. And God is saying, you'll have meaningful work to do that's not cursed by sin forever. You talk about someone who's having a midlife crisis or who's struggling at work, most of the time, like sometimes there's a financial question, but a lot of times it's a meaning question. 
Is what I'm doing contributing? Is it making a difference? Does it matter? And God is saying, you'll have meaningful work to do. You're inheriting this responsibility of ruling over the whole earth for eternity. You'll never be short on meaningful things to do. Next one we get is um, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. That's like quiet strength for they shall inherit the whole earth. The whole thing. You won't have to worry about where to live, where you'll go on vacation, where you'll do for that summer holiday. You, you have, you'll own the whole earth with all of God's people. God doesn't own just a strip of land in the Middle East. He owns the whole earth, the fullness thereof. And we're going to inherit the whole thing. No land insecurity, no space insecurity. It all belongs to God. And we as kids get a big chunk of that. Psalm 37, 29 says this. The righteous shall inherit the earth and dwell upon it forever. We inherit eternity, eternal life. At the nine o'clock service, I teared up more than I've teared up probably ever watching some video, right? But I was watching that seniors video. And I, like, this is my seventh year at this church. And those graduating seniors were sixth graders. When I first came here, I preached at their first camp. I, my first camp I preached at was their camp. And you see just how quick time goes. Time is the only resource that in this life, when you spend it or you waste it, gone. You waste money, you can make more money. You waste time, gone forever, never get it back. Until you consider eternity. And we, like this, this idea that it, we have all the time in the world to spend time with people unhurried, to learn, to explore, to rejoice, to connect. Like we, we inherit the earth and we dwell in it forever. We don't have a category for that. The reason vacation feels so good is because it's limited. Is because we just spent this other time buying this with that time. So we're trading our time. And, but when vacation, when we have the whole forever, it's going to totally change the even dynamic by which we experience relationships, conversations, meals, things like that. Psalm 37 says that, 773 says this, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my treasured possessions forever. This is the crux of our inheritance is that we get God. About a year ago, my grandma passed away. And I don't get to talk with her anymore. The wisdom, the stories, the perspective, the insight. And you think back to, man, I spent my time like this and now I don't get any more time with her. That opportunity is gone. And this cherishing of time, like we have the most wise, the most all-knowing, the most kind, the most interested, the most invested person in the universe and we get to be with him forever, that if that sounds boring, if that sounds uneventful, then we just don't know him well enough. And maybe you don't know him if you think that spending eternity with him sounds like, man, we're gonna run out of stuff to talk about. Better get out of board game. Because you're never gonna run out of stuff. Like it's constantly engaged. Like we get God forever, that he is the core of our inheritance. It's presence with him. And that leads to this new assumption. This kind of takes a turn for what initially sounds like the worst. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, end of 17, provided, I think the best way to translate that is assuming that we suffer with him. Like, wah, wah. That doesn't sound fun. Assuming that we suffer with him in order that, that there's this condition here, we, assuming we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, that feels like a change of gears. All of a sudden it's like, 
adopted, not a servant, heir of God, suffering. You know, it's like, how did that get roped in there? It just feels like, oh man, I was interested and now I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. But this is, this is, this is the assumption here. Right, like I remember uh, at my dad's basketball. So my dad was a basketball coach at Chandler High for a while, and I remember going to his games when I'm like seven, and hearing these like grown men, you know, parents of players or other teams, you know, complaining about coach that play call sucks, coach you're stupid. And as a seven year old turning around, be like, don't talk to my dad like that, you know, and just like <laughs> feeling like this defend dad. Thing, you know, and then fortunately those grown men were mature enough to go like, ha ha, and then just move on and not pick a fight with, with a seven-year-old. But it was just like this, this instinct of like, why are you talking to him like that? Like that that's it, this defend the family type instinct that when the name of God's maligned, we go like, hey, we stick our neck out. We go like, hey, that's me. Before you complain about those people, just so you know, I'm those people. Before you complain about that God, guess you know, I'm his kid. Before you like to talk trash about those beliefs, I have those beliefs. So there's this assumption that if you are part of God's family, you're going to be willing to go to the mat for God's name, for God's glory, for God's purposes. Otherwise, if you don't want to be part of God's family, then you don't have to be a part of God's family. You can just go do something else. God doesn't take prisoners. He takes children. (laughs) But there's also this, this beauty at the trajectory of Christ's life that he's regularly giving himself away that other people might flourish. This isn't Christ becoming a doormat. This is Christ willingly and lovingly giving his life away for other people. That is Christ-like suffering. This isn't suffering with Christ, I stub my toe, therefore I suffer like Jesus. That's not what it's talking about. It's not all suffering is suffering like Jesus. It's talking about the willful entering into loving others at the risk of your own self. It's not consenting to abuse and oppression. It's not becoming a doormat. It's not the erasure of self. It's the ability to sometimes set the hard boundary, say the hard truth, take the hard step, to wash feet, to do the dishes, to do the small things. It's this willingness to invest your life in the life of others for the sake of love. Sometimes it looks like consequences for oppressors. Sometimes that looks like uh, allowing yourself to turn the other cheek. This looks like a thousand things to a thousand different people. But the reality is that Paul here is assuming that if Christ has won you to himself, then he's winning you to live the type of life that he lived. And that's remarkable for us. That we would be a community of people all signing up to go like, we're assuming here that we're gonna suffer with Christ on some level. We're not totally exactly sure what that's gonna look like or what it's gonna be like, but we're all signing up for God has a blank check on possible future suffering for the sake of love. Now, God doesn't waste any of that. His suffering is always productive. It's not, it's not just uh, you know, pain for the sake of pain, but it's actually suffering that leads to the flourishing of other people, but he's assuming that this is what's gonna happen. This is an assumption. This isn't a threat. This is an assumption. And so my hope for us as a church, as Redemption Gateway, as, even as we go through this Romans chapter 8, that we would hear and sense and experience that whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, you're God's child, you're God's child, you're God's child. And that would lead to this position of security rather than insecurity before the Father that would lead us to have the freedom to give our lives away in loving service.
Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us. I ask that by your spirit that we would listen to your witness over and above the other witnesses. That we would have the courage to love sacrificially. Uh, That we would see ourselves not being at risk if we love too much or love too deeply. God, help us be assured of our inheritance. That our short-term financial insecurities may be real, but our long-term insecurities uh, really have no place. Help us think and act in light of eternity and in light of that future certain inheritance. In your name we pray. Amen.